I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. Welcome. Yes, coming to you from a bright and sunny Sydney. Mm. Daylight saving time has hit and uh, we're podcasting yeah, rather unusually mm. What in what feels like the middle of the day. Mm. Yeah, it's funny how it kind of disorients you, isn't it? Like I found that my whole... My whole body clock has been off for about a week. Like that one hour makes a huge difference. Right. Am so I just you... making daylight saving small talk? I feel like <laughs> even as I was saying, I'm like, that's the worst content. So you're going to sleep three times a day now rather than two? That's, I, I don't know where this, <laughs> this rumor started. I have, I have a 20-minute afternoon. So I've, been, I've, been, I've been up since six o'clock this morning. I've been up at six every day, baby. Yeah. Up yep. at six, getting stuff done, half hour sleep. No, but 20 minutes sleep, sorry. 3.35? No. You're out? No more. No more. <laughs> Um, speaking of uh, polymorphous pleasure, mm. we have our first series, Gen V. Mm. So Gen V is an American superhero television series. It is a spin-off, most notably, of The Boys. Mm. Billy, are you a fan of The Boys? I've only seen the first season and a half, but yeah, I thought it was great. Okay, so The Boys... It's one of those uh, shows I really improbably got into. Like, a few people recommended it. I gave it a go. Well, I'll talk about how I felt about it in the context of this. Yeah, talk, talk us through what it's okay, about. Okay, sure. Um, so this is actually based on a comic story arc from well, We Gotta Go Now by Garth Ennis and Derek Robertson. So this is, in particular, resituates the action of the boys to a university, Godolkin University. Now, this university is specially bespoke for young adult superheroes known as soups. Is it worth basically giving the premise of the boys? Do you want me to quickly go through the boys' premise to set it up? Sure. Like the, the boys takes place in a kind of superhero universe in which there are people who are born superpowered, but those people have largely misused their talents and abilities. And in the boys, the, the drama essentially revolves around a standoff between the seven, who are the kind of super, the most powerful or most prestigious superpowered people, who on the face of it use their powers for good, but actually are quite corrupt behind the scenes. And a renegade group called the Boys, who try and bring them down and expose the kind of vigilante right. group. So Homelander is one of the seven. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, okay. Will... Homelander is the most powerful of the seven. Okay, well, it felt like there was a bit of backstory yeah. I wasn't entirely filled in mm. um, on here, but I think you can and, still understand it as yes, a self-contained. Yes, this, this takes so, so, yeah, and so it takes place. It's the Vought kind of company who kind of are invested in it. Or this takes place in the same universe. It's basically a university narrative within that same extended universe. Yeah. Yep. So in our particular pilot for this series called God, shortened to God You, um, directed by Nelson Craig, uh, we meet uh, Mary Moreau, whose blood, uh, control over blood powers emerge when she hits puberty and she tragically kills both of her parents. So we flash forward eight years later and Marie is accepted into Godolkin University and we, we are introduced to the various hijinks associated with her, her roommate, uh, Emma Mayer, and the upperclassmen, Andre Anderson, Luke Reardon, Jordan Lee, and Kate Dunlap. So the complication in this, in this pilot occurs when um, there's a party, the upperclassmen act inappropriately, and Marie has to save a civilian from bleeding out. So despite the fact that she gains popularity from this, she is then threatened with expulsion by uh, Professor Richard Brinkerhoff, who appears to be the, the dean in this series. Who's the actor who plays him? He's so good, that guy. Yes, he, he plays, is. Um, in Billions, he plays the kind of Republican Texas governor. He's, always, he's great at playing really kind of a, like 
I don't know, like really sanctimonious, but also fascist authority. Figures. Yes, yeah. He's, he's got a real, he's got a real niche, a real lane. He's perfect as the dean. Here. Yeah, yeah. And he's a, a great good, scene. He's where, a good scenery chewer, isn't he? Yeah, there's a great scene where he's talking to the main character. What's her name again? Um, uh, Marie. Marie, and explain to her that he's like, you know, I know more about superheroes and superheroes themselves. I know more about you than you could possibly know. Like that real kind of like authoritarian, but also yes, like slightly moralistic. He's he's great in those kind of roles. Right, right, yeah. So a lot of a lot of this um, this pilot concerns uh, Marie, her her fitting in, her struggle to fit in, and a somewhat strained relationship with one of the upperclassmen called Luke, who is the golden boy and one of the fated, um, one of the future members of the fated seven seven played by Arnie's son. It's Patrick Schwarzenegger. Patrick Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger, yeah, Schwarzenegger yeah. played by Patrick Schwarzenegger, uh, who's you know. The, the upper the, the the golden boy and also the bit of a heartthrob mm. um, in his own right. So, without spoiling the end of the the pilot, uh, something happens involving Luke and his ambivalence about joining the Seven. Mm. Um, so, as a fan of the the boys, Billy, were you a fan of Gen V? What's funny, like remember something I've said to you in the podcast is that I may have said to you in in real life, but at certainly some point, something comments we shared that I, I've never seen. You know, most genres I can get into when it comes to film and television, but I'd never seen a superhero film, at least not since the early, like since Spider-Man. I, I'd never seen a superhero film really apart from, or, or television series, apart from, say, The Dark Knight, that really blew my mind. Like mm. It's a genre that seems to me immune to that kind of awe or fascination. This, I think, might be the first one. Like, I thought this was incredible in terms really? of world building. And wow. it, so much, I really enjoyed The Boys, but so much, it, and I thought I'd watch more of it. I didn't realise there was that much more. But so much more that it made me want to go back and rewatch it. So I, I thought this was, like, astonishingly good world building um, for a variety of reasons. So I thought, I mean, firstly, I thought the premise is so great. So you have... You have so just to kind of elaborate a little bit more on what you've said. You know the the way in which things happen in this world is that, you know, basically when they hit puberty, adolescents discover if they have a superpower or not. They have no control over it initially, and it can be very destructive. So the main character, her superpower is, as you said, this this kind of sentient blood that comes out of her out of wounds in her body and will kill people unless controlled. So both her parents are brutally killed, and everyone else seems to have a backstory like that. So you know. I find like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you often find that adolescent stuff is grafted onto the superhero genre in a pretty cynical, pretty empty way. Mm. Whereas here, this felt like a really authentic, like it felt like being a superhero was a manifestation of adolescence. Like mm. it's like the superhero body is like the body transforming through puberty mm. and none of the characters are kind of fully aware of what's happening or able to control it. It's interesting you say that because while this is a university story, it does feel it like feels a high, like, school, it feels like a high story school story transplanted to that. Or almost as if, being a superhero has created a kind of arrested development. Yeah. So, and you know, also there's all this stuff woven into it, like stuff around bulimia, eating disorders, gender fluidity, issues of consent, which again in a Marvel universe is so often just grafted on tackily, but here like feels really organic with it. You know, it's expressed with and through superhero powers in incredible ways. That I thought was amazing. I also absolutely loved like the way that superheroes are kind of presented in this world. So the basic gist is that when you know kids or adolescents develop these superpowers there's a couple of options that are open to them they can be sent to a reformatory which is basically a prison or they can graduate and get what's called a city contract and getting a city contract means having a superpower that's useful in a civic sense yeah but also you gotta have a certain social media clout like you've got to have followers you've got to have instagram so you've got to kind of build 
a brand for yourself. And yeah. I just thought this must speak so acutely to, you know, adolescents and young people today where, you know, when you grow up, everything seems hyper-visible, I imagine. And also there's more pressure on young people ever than, bef- than ever before to brand themselves mm. and to develop a personal online brand. Like, you know, we're an earlier generation of social media where, you know, you get online, you build a profile, it's quite... Whereas now it just seems like everything has to be branded. Mm. So it's this incredible, incredible kind of, um, you know, premise in which these young people have to, you know, part of being a superhero is developing their brand, is brand themselves. Mm. That's the second thing I like. First thing is the adolescent stuff, the way it captures, re- represents adolescence. Second one is the way it captures that social media world. But the third one is like, I feel like this is almost like a deconstruction of the superhero genre itself. Yeah. So it's like... It's very self-referential. But like in, in a really incredible way. So it's almost like superheroes at this university are like the affective counterpart to the military industrial complex right it's like it's like a superhero industrial complex so it's like alongside the army navy air force whatever you have these superheroes who become like emblems that are used for pr purposes yeah and like one of the amazing things about the university is how much it traffics in pr so it's like this great quote they've written down like the head of the university says they're trying to turn the superheroes into culturally rich change agents <laughs> and the classes they have are things like superhero ethics understanding branding there's a great ending where something very traumatic happens like one of the superheroes you know something very violent and traumatic happens and you cut to the credits in a very dramatic way and no sooner are you processing it than we cut again to the dean of the university doing a kind of pr spiel assuring yeah crisis management (laughs) assuring people that like this is not a systemic issue it's just one lone wolf superhero so it's like it just like it captures so well the way in which the superhero genre has become a kind of exercise in PR yeah. and exercise in branding. So for all those reasons, I thought it was incredible. I just found it really interesting and strange and bizarre on a scene-to-scene moment. Like, I was not expecting a shout-out to the film Jade here, for example. Like, it, it's <laughs> really... Yeah, David Caruso. Like, it's so wacky. Um, like I said, I'm somebody who... There's a kind of quirkiness and a, you know, inverted commas, relevance to so much Marvel stuff, I just find so mm. twee. This, I thought, was the opposite. Like, this felt engaged, it felt organic. It felt like it felt like the series creators went in knowing that almost inevitably superheroes can turn into bland exercises in PR. Yeah. And just kind of work their way around it. I, no, I, was, I, was, I, I, I was kind of blown away by it, and I want to revisit the boys. Like, what do you think? Yeah, I think, I think the strongest aspect of this yeah. pilot was certainly the... The, the knowing nods and winks to the exhaustion yes, of the exactly, superhero exactly. movie. I think we're at a point now, we're at a tipping point where, you know, superhero fatigue is a is a real thing. Yeah. Um and I think this this show, you know, engages with that concept mm. quite quite accurately. And in particular the sources of superhero exhaustion as well, which is the cynical manipulation and um And like the sense that when you see a superhero film, you're just watching a corporation acquire assets. <laughs> <True>. Right? <laughs> Acquire, acquire brands. True, true. Well, I mean, literally, you know, you look yeah. at something like the Avengers. It's just like a mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, of superhero, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> superhero, and you, I mean, you, you, you see the the voracious, acquisitive nature of, say, Marvel that that have acquired Fox Studios, and now they're mm. they're incorporating 
X-Men now into the next Avengers incarnation. So. And also just acquiring genres. So like in, <laughs> in the Marvel TV shows, we're saying, well, we've seen we've seen Marvel TV shows that bring in the David E. Kelly style of legal <laughs> drama, you know, She-Hulk Attorney at Law, that bring in the kind of 90s, you know, Indian subcontinent immigration British narrative, like Hanif <laughs> Kuriyashi, you know, like Mrs. Marvel. Like you see, it's it, like they cannibalise every single genre as a PR exercise. Yes. So like this, this felt... True. This felt full of rage at that. True, true. And the, one of the, I think, funniest moments is when the Dean is confronting uh, Marie and saying, well, well, we have to expel you, but you you know, you probably would have only made it as as, a, as an actor as well. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the sort of main bifurcation of the superhero's career paths are either in crime fighting or in... Like performing arts. Performing arts. Yeah, which I is, love you know, that. <laughs> um, but she probably wouldn't have been made in performing arts either, yeah. he said, because she did... You know, her superpowers don't have four quadrant appeal. Yes, exactly. That that kind of language. It's, it's like the language it's used in Marvel boardrooms. Like the, yeah. the, 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 the kind of the language it's used in Marvel kind of huddles yeah. and Marvel kind of blue sky thinking meetings is now part of the superhero <laughs> universe. Yeah, true. I love that the corporate lexicon of the superhero. True. I think this also comments and interrogates the way that the superhero genre increasingly has, you know, cannibalized this, this woke register as well yes, and appropriated... Yes. Um, you know the, the kind of marginal characters. Mm. Um, I think obviously a noble project, but nonetheless pretty cynically mm. and superficially mm. engaging with identity politics in some of their more recent mm. um, sort of late work. Mm. Um, and I think this this also does respond Absolutely. respond to that, and it, it is quite a good a good satire mm. of that. Um, and well, it's deaf too. Like what you know, it's on the one hand it punctures a certain kind of Marvel identity politics. On the other hand, the stuff it does do, it doesn't kind of telegraph. So it's like as a character yeah. who, you know, their superpower is effectively being trans or intersex, like they change gender at a moment's notice. And, you know, in a Marvel film, that would be so telegraphed from the beginning. Look how innovative this is. Look how, here is just a part of the world. Yeah. Like it's just, you know, the stuff it does do that's kind of radical or progressive, it just does. Yeah. Without turning it into another brand. Yeah. Yeah, and there is something here. I was wondering how transgressive this series would be mm. because I know I've heard the boys is mm. quite it's quite transgressive. This this earns a hard R mm. for a number of things. Very hard R, <laughs> yeah. the times. including including you know uh, nudity yeah. and um, like high impact uh, sex scenes. And I was mm. wondering how is that gonna how is that gonna work its way in here? And they mm. they do that in quite an interesting, pretty surreal kind yeah, of way. Pretty surreal way. Yeah. So um, there is something I think you know. There's a license here to be transgressive in a way that that Marvel could never be because no. of its its need to you know to appeal to the four quadrant the mar- market the market share <laughs> the market share. So yeah, look, I think this is refreshing. It's it's yeah. an interesting way of engaging with I think the, the late exhaustion mm. with with the genre. Like it sounds like you're not quite as in as me, which is f- not fair. quite not quite as in because I feel like it a lot of this was it in adornments on quite a conventional high school slash university narrative. I was just so intrigued by the flourishes. Like I love the stuff about the different classes, about the different trajectories. Like I found myself like really just, I've actually started watching the second episode. Okay. Like I found myself just engaged with the world. I like the adornments. I like the embellishments, but I think underlying that it's quite a conventional sort of fitting in narrative, um, which, which I probably wasn't so on board with. Mm. But then again, I'm not, I, uh, there are a lot of things that went over my head because I've never seen the boys. Mm. So this definitely makes me want to track down the boys. I know well, that the character of Homelander is, yep. is like quite hilarious. So I do, He's I the do main want to see the antagonist of bo- yeah, the boys. Yep. Yeah. So I look, I do want to track down the boys and see it. I think this is mm. probably a bit of a pale imitation of that. It's funny. I actually I remember thinking the boys was you know I got 
the, the habit of watching it like on weekends and stuff. I remember thinking it was pretty good. You know, so much buzz around it. I thought this was better. Okay. This I thought I was like, did I underestimate the boys? Like, did I underestimate how good that was? Yeah. Well, certainly this is getting great reviews, and yeah. I think audiences appear to be lapping it up. Mm. So, um, yeah, you, I don't think you're wrong here. I'm a hard in. I think this is the first, genuinely the first superhero series I've seen that kind of blew my mind or might mm, blow my mind mm. I, I thought it was incredible maybe this will be a bridge to Marvel proper yeah well that will exactly <laughs> maybe I can watch we can watch Blue Beetle we can watch WandaVision together <laughs> remember how anyway that's a conversation for another time yes I'm a hard in okay onto our next series this week um, Encounters on Netflix and oh, sorry I just dropped my microphone <laughs> that was a mic drop moment all good um, yeah the uh the tripod is an issue. I, like I said, we, I, I thought that a tripod was the most structurally sound um, thing you could put a microphone in on. In nature. In nature. Appar- apparently not. Apparently not. Ah, oh, there we go. I haven't... All good. All good in the hood. Okay, so the next series... Um, this, is, this is live and unvarnished. I know. Yeah, but we don't know how to edit. It's not, not even a choice. Not even a conscious choice. Um, it's called Encounters. And it's interesting. It's kind of another example, I guess, of Netflix taking on a kind of beloved... Um, cultural property. So in the same way that Netflix uh, rebooted Unsolved Mysteries, Netflix, is act- this is actually a reboot as well. It's a, a series called Encounters, The Hidden Truth, oh. which is, a, yeah, I'd never heard of it. Um, it was a three-season series that lasted from 1994 to 1996. And it was kind of like the equivalent of Unsolved Mysteries, but for the paranormal and the unexplained. So it dealt with UFOs, but it also dealt with the occult. It dealt with paranormal, parapsychic phenomena, stuff like this. So this is to kind of encounter the hidden truth, what the Netflix reboot of Unsolved Mysteries is to the original. The difference is this is a much shorter series. It's only four episodes. It's, it's more focused of, entirely on UFOs. It's focused entirely on the, UFOs. Rather than more mysterious yeah. happenings, happenings, which is the umbrella term for... Paranormal. Yeah, unexplained phenomenon. Although it seems like, at least in this episode, it kind of, around the fringes, around the margins, uh, is that kind of paranormal discourse. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting messianic turn to some of this, uh, you know, interpretation encounters. And I think it's time for us just to briefly talk on this podcast about our friend Dave. (laughs) Dave, Dave, Dave. Uh, we We have a very close friend called Dave, lovely friend, highly intelligent friend who in the last couple of years has become fascinated with UFOs. Mm. And, you know, in some ways has convinced me, in many ways has convinced me about some aspects of it. But mm. I think it would be fair to say that UFOs are a passion for Dave. Oh, yeah. An obsession for Dave. Yes. A vocation for Dave. <laughs> and so I've heard a lot about UFO phenomenology, about UFO experiences, about experiences, yeah. as they're called. And it's actually interesting to see how much... The material in here reflects some of the stuff that Dave, our resident UFO guru, has talked about. So each episode in Encounters is about a different encounter. It's about a different set of experiences. And the first episode focuses on a community in Texas, Dublin, Stephen, Stephenville, Dublin, Stephenville, um, and a group of people who over a single night in, I've forgotten the year, when was it? Was it the 90s? Uh, it was the 90s, 98 yeah. 98 or something? Yeah. Who all, all experienced, or all, like, you know, a huge number of people in the community. Sorry, it might have been noughties. It might have been noughties. Yeah, do you, do you want, why don't you at least check that? Because I've actually forgotten what year it was. But while Andrew's looking it up, the, the basic gist of it is that in this small Texas community, a vast number of people in the town saw unexplained aerial phenomena over a single night. And it, you know, in different parts of the town, people from different social groups, different 
occupations, different backgrounds in the town. It was kind of an event that was widely recorded. Interestingly, though, this is woven into a larger tapestry associated with the with the release of the Pentagon UFO files, as well as the, <coughs> the first the first hand um, observations. Absolutely. Of of one of the, you know, we might describe it as whistleblowers. Exactly. That's almost like a framing device yeah. in the series, which legitimizes To give it credibility. It, to give it credibility. And it's interesting, there, there, are, there are a few... I mean, so just, just as an aside, worth saying that in that sense, it's very much like an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Like, there are mm. some episodes of Unsolved Mysteries that are about UFO sightings. And they generally involve a community of people who've all had a similar experience so yeah. it's like it but exactly the the framing device is the re, the recent release of pentagon information about ufos yeah interestingly this first pilot does focus on a 2008 2008 encounter. i had 98 my yeah. 2008 okay yep um and as you said like credibility is a big thing here so it seems to me that they've chosen people um from the town who have some kind of social standing so mm. Police officers, teachers, people, you know, local business owners, you know, pillars of the community. And something I thought was kind of interesting is one of the things that to me lent kind of credibility. You know, because I'm interested in true crime, I've listened to quite a lot of podcasts about um, how to tell if someone's lying, how to kind of read testimony. And one of the things people say is that you know specific details are a really big part of testimony. And it's interesting here that when the pe- most people describe having this experience of the UFO, they're nearly always very specific about what they were doing at the time. I mm. mean. The UFO experience itself is quite different, and we'll talk about that in a moment. That's interesting. But nearly always, it's a very specific lead-up tableau. So, you know, I was the police officer, something like I was stopping to check on something at a restaurant. One of the women was picking up her daughter from a gym session. You know, it's, it's very specific, the circumstances around each experience people have of um, these UFOs or whatever they are in the sky. So, yeah, that's, that's the kind of background... Um, you know, it's a, it's a group of people having a single experience. There are these kind of nods to kind of credibility, and it is couched within this broader, I guess, resurgence of UFO discourse. Mm. Um, something thing I, I thought was fascinating about this is that there is a very clear UFO phenomenology, I think, going on here, and that all the people who have the experiences describe a similar thing. Um, and I guess the way you describe it is, how can I put this? Like. Each person who recounts what happened describes a kind of collapsing of subjective and objective perception mm. or a kind of collapsing of the space between perceiver and perceived. And this even seems to extend to media. So there are some people here who tried to f- kind of take these objects on a phone or a camera and found the film flickering or being interfered with. And what people come away from, it seems to be, is an experience. And, and, and not many of them necessarily say that it's alien life. In fact, in, in many ways, it feels like this is moving beyond alien visitation as the only explanation for these phenomena. But interestingly, what people describe is primarily a sense of disorientation. Mm. And you feel that they're unable to kind of conceptualise or visualise or describe or even fully recall what happened. Like mm. It's like there's a kind of aporia or a rupture in perception. And especially that gap between perceiver and perceived is eradicated in a way that is seems like profoundly disorienting but can also have a profoundly emotional impact. And certainly for my friend Dave, he said this is a common experience of this you know, phenomenology of what it means to be to witness one of these events in the skies. I thought that was that was really effective um, in terms of testimony. What did you think? Yeah, look, I think this is, you know, I, I think a, an interesting, more contemporary way of engaging with the the 
phenomenon and the phenomenology yeah. of of the UFO. Um, obviously, the pilot—it's got to be as credible as you can make it. So yep. it's it's almost framed like a detective story here. And that's the way Netflix have described it as a detective yeah, story. Yeah. So we have first-hand eyewitness accounts, which, which appear to be yeah from from high well people who have at least ostensibly high credibility. Uh, we have corroboration in terms of multiple witnesses, um, and then further corroboration through radar. Mm. Um, oh yeah. Ra- yeah, which is which is uncovered. Um, through a freedom of information request. So, and then the larger framing narrative as well lends it greater credibility. So one of the obvious, of the, the traumas that a lot of the people encounter, experiences encounter is, is not even the fact that they're, they're not believed, but they're ridiculed. Mm. And it seems like there's always a kind of second wave of ridicule that's, that's almost mobilised in a way to discredit them, almost at a visceral level. Mm. Um, so, it's like they have to be... They have to be disavowed. Yeah. The experience has to be disavowed through mockery. Yeah. So you see those different phases in the you know the mass encounter, um, which we did, which we, is depicted here. So initially the encounter you know gets local, despite the reporter and the editor being reluctant to report it. Once it is reported, it goes viral in a way that you know almost predates modern social media. Then it rises to national attention, and then. Um, Everyone here is is granted enormous significance. They have a town hall meeting. About three hundred people show up and all claim to have experienced the same same event. So it seems irrefutable that everyone experienced, uh, you know, uh, an, an encounter. Um, and then the out of town has come in, and it seems like the ridicule is heaped on these people, and nothing occurs subsequent to it. So it fades into obscurity, and it almost, you know, um, overlaid with the kind of hint of ridicule okay, and, that, okay, go ahead, yeah yeah and there's a suggestion here that um this is a, you know, a common reaction based on early attempts by the u.s government to discredit ufo you know phenomenology ufo experiences well, this, is, this, is, this is the kind of the and i'm just i'm not endorsing it either way but i'm saying this is the common pro-ufo narrative right that during the cold war the u.s government deliberately conducted a campaign of disinformation to detract distract attention away from these events and focus instead on the Soviet threat. Yeah. That's okay. I yeah. mean, I feel like that that process is encapsulated really well here in the kind of the head of the newspaper. So mm. this is the woman Yeah, who, the editor. Yeah, yeah, the editor, the main editor. She, so she, she's from out of town. She's from California. So that immediately positions her as a kind of sceptic. Yeah. Know, she's, east, uh, she's West Coast. She's urbane. And indeed, when her newspaper, one of her journalists initially reports on it, she's she's annoyed and sceptical. But then she herself has an experience later on down the track. So it's like her trajectory is almost like captures that in a single person. Yeah, I think there's something as well that it feels like a lot of the people who experience UFOs are from this, this flyover country, this heartland. Mm. So possibly lower socioeconomic. They're mm. often... You know, working on the land or having encounters like that, so they're easy, possibly, to discredit. Mm. And no doubt, there are charlatans who jump on board, and you know, opportunists mm. um, and new ages and so forth, who who lend this phenomenon, um, you know, a, an easy manner of you know discrediting it. Um, but none, nonetheless, there is something quite powerful and compelling about this this kind of you know just the facts style of corroboration it does remind me of leslie Keane's um yep. book on on the ufo yep. uh, encounter which is which is powerful and compelling because it is 
is done with such journalistic rigour. And probably worth saying that Leslie Keane is a preeminent um, journalist about UFOs, and the way in which she writes about the subject is basically as a kind of catalogue of things that we can't explain. Yeah, and that's a catalogue of eyewitness testimony. That's what's done here. Yeah. And it's funny, I was going to say, like, you know, a friend. Dave has this kind of interesting theory that there's what he calls a UFO aesthetic, so that certain films, you know, often reflect. So he, he's very interested in that phenomenology of UFOs and that way in which, across all experiences, there seems to be this this strange dislocation of perception. Mm. And he's interested in how that plays out in film and television. And so he has this reading that there's a certain UFO aesthetic that you sometimes see in films and television series that are not about UFOs. Yeah. But also conversely, that you may have a film or a television series about UFOs that don't have that aesthetic. Mm. And something like watching this, I was wondering is like, is, is there a kind of parallel between the UFO aesthetic and the Netflix aesthetic? Because this feels like Netflix in the classic mode, right? Um, and Netflix is a kind of ancestor of Apple TV+, Plus because all the things that Netflix does here, I think Apple TV+, Plus does in a more heightened way. But those ingredients, I think, all lend themselves to a kind of UFO narrative. So testimony, first-person narrative, I think this is one case or one area where that, that first-person talking heads Netflix approach is so powerful because you have people describing experiences that they can't quite get a handle on. Mm. So that, secondly, obviously drone aesthetics. Yeah. You know, like, you know, that aerial perspective obviously works for UFOs. But also, remember when Netflix came out, like, the images were so crystalline and so sharp in a way that Apple TV Plus is now. It captures this sense of preternatural perception. It captures this sense of perception that goes just above and beyond everyday life, like this heightened sense of awareness. So all those things... Like, I feel like there is this synergy between UFOs and Netflix. Like, it's the perfect... I feel like watching... Mm. I was like, this is net, classic Netflix perfected for this subject matter. And even in Unsolved Mysteries, the best ones I thought were often UFOs or ones that had an aerial UFO-like perspective, like the um, the guy the, who jumps off the hotel oh, or falls yeah. off the hotel and the whole thing is those aerial shots of the hotel. You know? Yeah, so yeah. I, th- I think I th- it's, 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 it's... I think it's a visual thing, but it's also... The experience, I think, of streaming yes, and the way it that's really plays way to put time it. and the yes. way it manipulates and distorts time. Yep. Um, yeah, I know the binge aesthetic, you know, you sort of time expands and contracts and that's becomes perfect, quite yeah. relative. So the experience of streaming and the flow state that you enter, I think, also mimics what these people describe as, you know, the aesthetic of the encounter. That's exactly right. And that's uh, a nice way to put it, the aesthetic of the encounter is what this is ultimately about. Mm. I think about capturing that, about evoking that. Mm. Um, and interestingly, and this is where I start to switch off, not because I you know, think that there's no necessarily no credence to it because I start to find it freaky. Around the fringes of this is a kind of is UFO discourse segueing into a more paranormal discourse. Yeah. Right? So you sense it. <laughs> I mean, there's one of the characters who is a Texan who it opens and closes with him kind of giving his children a Bible lesson and explaining certain aspects of the Bible in terms of UFOs. So the chariot in Ezekiel, you know, fairly conventional connection to UFOs, but also the, the star guiding the three wise men to Bethlehem, he describes as a UFO. So it's it's pretty wacky. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'm not sure they'll go any further down that route, but it's a placeholder for a, an interest the series seems to have in situating UFOs within this broader field of paranormal happenings. Yeah. Well, it seems like this is one of the, one of the thrusts of recent UFO discourse, mm-hmm. Where you know there's there's pretty credible evidence of of unidentified flying objects, but less credible evidence of of alien life forms. And that, that yeah. causal chain between the two um, is is more difficult to substantiate. So I think this this focuses on the unidentified aerial phenomenon and then gives less weight, I think, and less prominence to the 
the, the eyewitnesses who try to, you know, um, or who have have seen something that's uh, that approximates a more conventional alien encounter. So this this I think more more modern UFO discourse is is aiming to be just more much more rational, much more scientific, and and trying to you know shed that the stigma that's associated with the that that leap, the yeah. causal leap. And that's something I think that is distinctive about this is that mm. that whole discourse of alien visitation is not present. Not no at all really. I mean it's almost like that is a relic of the 50s and 60s. I mean, mm. To quote one of our other friends who has become also into UFO discourse, Renee, um, it seems like, he, I think Renee once said, the truth is here and it's not about little green men. <laughs> shout out Renee. So this is, shout out Renee. So this is, this is moving away from the little green men discourse Definitely. into a broader field of happenings, which, I mean, it's interesting, you know, like, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be something kooky either. I mean, there's, all kinds of interesting readings about dimensionality. Yeah, well, about, I mean, I know, you know Stephen Hawking said one of the one of the greatest arguments against time travel is we're not inundated with mm. with tourists from the future, mm. or are we? Yeah, exactly. So exactly. So it's that kind of um, so that, that that I find more comforting or more you know amenable to my way of looking at the world than paranormal stuff, which is just too crazy, <laughs> too crazy for me to contemplate. Um, but too look, crazy or too real? No, 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 no. Um, UFOs I can do, paranormal, bridge too far. Um, but look, I thought this was really watchable. And, you know, thanks for being friends with, with Dave. We have consumed quite a bit of UFO content with Dave over the years. This one I thought was unique for really capturing, as you said, the aesthetic of the encounter. Yeah. I thought that was yeah. really compelling. And I think as well, it, it, it doesn't have the sort of credulity that a lot of these series have, which, which undermines their, Missing their, their credibility. Andrew showed me... <laughs> no, 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 I stand by that. Andrew showed me this that series... That was all about the aesthetic, Billy. Andrew showed me this, this series <laughs> called Missing 411. I mean, you know, it, I mean, this was rigorous, fairly rigorous, but in Canada, but Missing 411, literally the thesis was like, oh, like this bloke who was 80 went for a walk in the woods. He was blind, he was deaf, he didn't know the area and he had a heart condition and he vanished. He must have been taken by aliens. That was the level. It was <laughs> not, creepy. Not taken, hunted. Hunted. Oh, no, Missing 411. Like a predator. Yeah. I, I mean, like, are you, you going to do Missing 411 for archive this week? I just, I don't know if that's coming, but that was that was not convincing. Whereas this, I think, by contrast, con- like the ideas in Missing 411 in that franchise were very kind of cool, but yeah. the kind of... It, that was a show that captured the aesthetic more than it did, you know, the... Yeah, sure. The, sure. you know, the credibility. But I think the, the aesthetic is more, is more compelling when it's credible. Yeah. So I think no, this, I, agree. this I, agree. I thought, was like genuine. And, and interestingly, the second episode, which I, which I have watched as well... Oh, interesting. Um, ...deals with the sort of mass delusion phenomenon as well. Yeah, so right. It, it does adopt a more critical lens when, when needed as well, so... And I've heard that it goes on to do USOs. <laughs> yes. Unidentified submersible objects. Yes, yes. So we're, look, we're in a golden age for UFO discourse. UFOlogy. Yeah. And I think this this makes a, a pretty a pretty credible splash yeah. in that in that in that pool. Yeah, it was interesting. I'm I'm an in. I'm curious to watch the next three. I'm an in too. Okay, on to our next series. Now this is also a a, a nonfiction hmm. uh, account, and it is. We might describe it as a as a true crime. Yeah, feature, I was say, although slightly very different. Is a true from our crime. conventional true crime. Yeah. Um, so this this uh, series, Saviour Complex, is directed and produced by uh, Jackie Jesco and explores the case of the non-profit Serving His Children, which was founded by Renee Bach um, and the allegations that swirled after Renee Bach was found to have uh, treated uh, sick children in Uganda without appropriate medical qualifications. Mm-hmm. What I think is particularly interesting and unique about this series is that we actually get to hear from Bach herself mm. from the very 
from the very beginning. So a little bit more background about this premise. So in 2009, uh, Renee Back um, went on a, well, at, probably before this, she went on a, uh, a missionary trip to Uganda. And this later prompted her to start an, a Christian nonprofit called Serving His Children. Uh, initially, it focused on dealing with malnutrition. Uh, Buck was not a doctor. She had no formal medical training. Um, but nonetheless, because of a need, her uh, her premises became something of a kind of clinic. Mm. Um, and it's all set in this town, Ginger. Yeah. seems to be the epicentre of the kind of missionary... Christian missionary... Uh, scene. Scene in, in the Uganda. Kind of the community. Yeah, so... While this does explore the, the particular case of Buck, it also does take a slightly, or well, zooms out a little bit to explore the general uh, environment of, of mis- Christian missionary work, the ambivalence of it, um, the role of non-government organisations in Africa, mm. as well as the the white saviour um, mm. narrative as well. So we, we also hear from the founders of uh, an alternative uh, non-profit called No White Saviours, mm. Uh, Olivia Alasso uh, and Kelsey Nielsen, um, as well as a number of uh, medical personnel they, from the Ginger Hospital. And they draw a really kind of concise distinction between being a community activist and being a white saviour. I, I also love the way in which for them all, like their seminal text for like all the perils of white saviourdom is um, the Jared Butler film Machine Gun Preacher. <laughs> Machine Gun Preacher, Machine yes. Gun Preacher yes. becomes the archetypal text of the white saviour complex and they link it to Jared Butler's actual charity yeah, work and social media and social media so where he's holding out a bowl for, yeah. for starving African Harry children Harry Styles and Ed Sheeran are the other two to come under fire That's, they really skewer that yeah. effectively so I was I was wondering why is such a broad palette for this but apparently that's part of the the inception of this show because uh, Jesco only discovered um, Renee Buck's story after wanting to make a documentary about the white saviour narrative and yep. And colonial narratives, um, so yeah. So I think this is this is a, this is a show that you, you kind of it sort of does a it, it operates almost effectively by misdirection. Mm. So we're introduced by to Buck, and she appears very sympathetic. She's mm. a young, uh, altruistic American uh, woman who's now living in America, banned from. Uh, expelled from Uganda, banned from visiting there again. Oh, banned, really? Yeah, so she has, wow. she has, but she has, it appears like an adoptive uh, Ugandan daughter. Mm. Um, and she seems, for all intents and purposes, very, mm. a very harmless, well-meaning young lady. Um, then we, we cut to ideas about missionary work and mm. the ambivalence of missionary work and how it perpetuates the white saviour narrative. Mm. And ironically, I think we also hear from the, the founder of the white, No White Saviour um, non-profit who's also white or well, one, of, one of the key yeah, members one of who, the co-founders so she's, well. she's almost like a reform missionary yeah, like reform she, missionary. she went over to do missionary work yeah but it seems like weird and paradoxical that we also have a an American co-founder of this No White Saviors mm. movement suggesting just the various layers inextricable ways that, mm. that Africa is linked to the developed world through these kind of mm. relationships of, of dominance and submission um, it's interesting what you say about Renee too because I think I had a very it's interesting the way it sets her up. So at the beginning, I mean, you know, leaving my thoughts about that whole missionary scene aside for the moment, because we'll come back to that. I mean, at the beginning, for a lot of, for much of the episode, she seems quite sympathetic. Oh, absolutely. You know, so yeah. you know, she goes to Africa, she starts working for a charity, and she basically has 
you know, for mothers and children coming to her continually with malnutrition issues, she takes them to local hospitals. The hospitals are severely understaffed. And she describes how one night she had a child with her and she went around from hospital to hospital trying to get the child medical care. And just because of the chronic you know, issues with infrastructure, she couldn't. And the child died. Yeah. So, you know, she has these stories of actually trying to make, to bridge the gap and to, I guess, make contact with actual medical institutions. And there's no, no criticism of the people who work there. They're just, they're just not, they don't have the resources. So the way she frames it is like I had all these children and parents coming to me the hospitals couldn't deal with them so i just did the best i could so yeah. that seems all that seems you know when i was watching it i thought well you know what's i, I thought where's the contra controversy here I, I, like is, I, it, is this is this going to be one of those cases about someone who's just who's wronged by the system well at the very least i thought you know she's doing a lot more than a lot of people are doing yeah but then there's a really interesting pivot about yeah. five ten minutes from the end the where pivot is incredible the pivot is another for me another christian missionary who goes over to work there as a nurse and this nurse is exactly the same kind of background as Renee. In fact, she and her, you know, fiancé are both Christians. They're both equally invested in the scene. And unlike Renee, she has medical training. And she kind of describes the experience of um, arriving at the Serving His Children kind of base, which is a house in Jinju, and going through all the rooms and coming across a room which is set up as a kind of EMC. Mm. And just as a nurse, you can tell that, and maybe because she is Christian as well, you can tell she's trying to be very understanding and very compassionate about it, but you can tell that she's absolutely shocked at what's happening and at the lack of medical care, and particularly the kind of issues around um, what's called, I think it's called refeeding syndrome. So, you know, apparently when children are severely malnourished, it's actually quite dangerous to introduce too much liquid and food immediately. And, you know, again, you know, giving Renee some benefit of the doubt at this point, it's like, well, she's, she's not qualified. She's doing the best she can. But just the shock at this medical practitioner's perception of it and then some of the data and facts you hear makes you realise just how negligent this is. And at the very mm. end... And you, her motivation for treating the children the way she does yep. at being called by God. Exactly. She, she sees the calling as a substitute for actual medical qualification. So it kind of takes this very abrupt pivot towards the end in a way that, you know, it kind of, it's very effective how it does it. Like, it, and it, to be fair, it gives her the benefit of the doubt up to a point yeah. and presents her on her own terms. But Yeah, she's not entirely unsympathetic, mm. even with the pivot, but the pivot and, is so dramatic. I mean, she also has a Ugandan child who she saved. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's very possible that if she hadn't adopted that child, the child would have died. The child yeah. didn't have any parents. So it just, it's complex, but you do, I found myself coming down the side of like, well, you know, you are doing a lot, in some ways a lot more than some people do and the intention is there, but really this is, this is medical malpractice. Oh, absolutely. It's a severe medical malpractice. Absolutely. And um, I think that the, the pivot is everything because mm. the pivot here gives this a kind of Rashomon type structure. It where does. Everything you thought you knew mm. is completely reversed, inverted. Mm. Um, and it, it did make sense as well, the, the white, the, the white saviors, because the white savior goes from being almost a kind of metaphorical concept mm. To a literal one mm. um, almost and almost it felt like almost a kind of munchausen's by proxy as well like mm. it felt like this is somebody who you know if i'm recalling that syndrome right it's when you you know there's a famous case in the uk at the moment about a woman who had it who murdered a whole lot of babies in the hospital it's when you you know kill people around you so that you get sympathy for being there and it mm. kind of feels like there's some munchausen by proxy happening here i mean so much of it is about her grief at these children being you know like passing away you feel like that's 
clinically probably what's happening. Yeah, but that's linked also, I think, to this the white savior narrative yep. and also to these these patterns. No, I'm just saying it's clinically. Not these, what's yeah, these relationships between Africa and the developed world in terms of, in particular, the way that nonprofits market themselves mm. and the more dramatic and graphic the footage, the more funding they will receive. Mm. So there's a there's a comment there about you know, the ambivalence of, of marketing these nonprofits as well. This is one of the things I was going to say. Like, I mean, you know, on the, on the one hand, you have all that white saviour discourse that takes place in Africa that's really interesting. But the kind of the counterpart of that, I thought it was just really interesting to get, it was like almost like a sociological study of the missionary scene. Yeah. Like, it seems like there's an enormous amount of missionary traffic from middle America to this part of Africa. And I, I had no sense, really, of the links between missionary work and social media. I mean, it's almost like your missionaries are influencers. Yeah. And it's almost like this is what happens here is a logical conclusion of influencer expertise. Yeah. Like expertise, inverted comments. Because you know that in the world of influencers, I mean, one of the, the things that influencers are often notorious for is crackpot health advice. Mm. Like take someone like Pete Evans here during the pandemic saying vaccines are going to kill you. Actually, Russell Brand. I can't remember exactly what he said. I don't want to be... But, you know, yeah. say, being anti-vaxxer, basically. So, yeah. you know, so much of a certain brand of influencing is promoting a kind of a spiritual wellness above without any medical qualification. Well, this is kind of the extreme version of that. We yeah. have someone going to Africa dealing with malnourished children, but that kind of influencer wellness framed here as a calling supervenes any kind of emergency medical protocols i thought like i just remember in australia i was keep saying pete evans but i remember in australia it was his to me the stuff he was saying about the pandemic was so off and so many scientists disagreed with him but he just had this clout because this influencer you know presence and this just to me just felt very continuous with that yeah so yeah just that, that connection between missionaries and influence i mean i guess in a sense missionaries are influences yes in the most yes. literal sense aren't they yes and it look i think there is there is a lot of ambivalence about about missionary work and mm. about these christian non-profits who offer support to africa with it with with strings attached mm. Um, and obviously they have such a presence in Uganda because it's a staunchly Christian country and they feel mm. they can save you know, souls as well as mm. bodies. Um, but yeah, there, there is, um, there, there, you know, no doubt um, she is well-intentioned and I, I do feel uh, that if she hadn't intervened, there would have been a lot of people who just did die I of mean, malnourishment. So. It's funny, it reminded me of what we were talking about last week with the trad wife and it, it reminds me of the trad wife and that, well, on the surface... Both of these things are about a certain set of values, traditional feminine values and traditional Christian values, but really the libidinal core is influencing. Yeah. And is that, I mean, and so like some of the, the bits here that I found most unsettling actually were where you'd have like some footage of, you know, like a malnourished child and under it be like something like, just a little message from me here in Africa. Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, on the one hand, like, I mean, it's easy, I guess, for us to be blithe. Like, there are people who go there and do this stuff out of the goodness of their heart. But also, like, it seems like several hundred children died on her watch. Yeah. So, like, there's a very, very real human toll. So yeah. that was something that I I just I kind of I found fascinating, this way in which, like, for certain, it seems like especially middle American communities, all those energies that go into influencing and social media for maybe secular communities are still there, but take the form of this kind of highly socially mediatized missionary work. Mm. That In I thought was fascinating and, and unsettling. Interesting as well that a lot of the practice is focused on Africa, yep. deepest, darkest Africa, rather mm. than their own communities, which are blighted by well, exactly. poverty, child poverty and well, exactly. you know, drug mean, addiction and so, and so forth. I think the fact that Africans are, are innocent, in inverted commas, yep. allows them to... To, you know, exercise this power with with fewer ambiguities. It feels like 
you know, from the perspective, you know, again, I know it sounds like we're being very blithe here, but you know, several hundred children died, so it's, yeah. a, it's a serious thing. Um, and the st- and part of where it comes from is this kind of representation. I mean, it feels like in some ways for these people, Africans are available for kitsch yes. in a way that African-Americans might not be. Yes. Like you feel like this kind of, you know, you didn't see anywhere in the film this kind of feeling being extended to the African-American descendants at their doorstep. Do True. you know what I mean? And there's an interesting, I guess, uneasy alliance between you know, right-wing uh, neoliberals and Christian mm. fundamentalists sure. as well, which means any sort of redistribution of wealth is kind of anathema. Mm. So, sure. so that's why I guess a lot of their focus of these kind of charitable deeds mm. is not in their local communities, but instead oh. in this kind of mythical other, sure. where you know they can they can kind of you know save souls and kind of you know um, you know mm. achieve achieve virtue for the innocent i agree so but i think i think you're I right think this this deals with i think this 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 series like interrogates that 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 paradox and that I agree. that ambiguity um i mean and it's easy to kind of like i said to be snide about it but just you, you did find yourself wondering i found myself wondering like are these people who are against black lives matter how where do these people stand on issues of race that are actually at home like i i, I think you're exactly right like going to africa this mythical homeland this mythical state of innocence there's something about it that's there's a projection there. It's a kitsch that you know, like you know, like I said, picture of a, a malnourished child, caption, just a little message from me in Africa. You know, hashtag inspired. Like it was yeah. unsettling. Yeah, and yet so many of these um, non-profits in Africa do good. They circumvent the way that that you know sure. very corrupt infrastructure of the African government. So mm. it deals with that as well. Mm. So there's, I think this is one of those great true crime documentaries where. It, it's we're so ambivalent mm. towards our subject and the subject matter mm. that it just lends itself to I think very rich discussion. In probably the person who was most sympathetic was the other missionary, the woman who'd gone there, you know, with her not primarily as a nurse, yeah. you know, gone there with medical training. I mean, we've got family friend who's going to spend ages with her partner in Tanzania doing like that stuff. I think is quite different yeah, from yeah. what's happening here. So, yeah. look, it was it was fascinating. I thought this was like this was this was one of the more unusual and eccentric um, HBO true crime documentaries. Yeah. I'm, I'm an in. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I thought this was fascinating. Yeah. I'm hardy. Okay, on to a pretty, 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 pretty good archive choice. <laughs> Although he doesn't say that in um, this uh, pilot, I don't think. Of course, talking about Curb Your Enthusiasm, the Larry David show, I'm pretty sure that Larry David first says pretty, pretty, pretty good when his therapist asks him how he is. That's the <laughs> sure. first time it comes in. So... Curb Your Enthusiasm, it's, we all know it as a spiritual sequel to Seinfeld. It's created by Larry David, who co-created Seinfeld. Um, unlike Seinfeld, Larry David's, well, Larry David's in a few episodes of Seinfeld in you know cameo roles, The Man in the Cape, Stein Brenner. But here Larry David is front and centre. It's about his life post-Seinfeld in LA. It started as a one-hour uh, HBO special, Larry David, Curb Your Enthusiasm. But that was only ever meant to be a one-off. And I think actually... The pilot we've watched here is the true spiritual pilot of the show. Um, half hour series. Well, let, let, let me quickly talk about how it's different from Seinfeld. So yeah. many of the same features, but firstly, it's set in LA, Santa Barbara, rather than New York. Very different feel. Secondly, whereas Seinfeld is tightly, meticulously scripted, this is largely improvised. Um, third, whereas Seinfeld is kind of well, you know, this kind of formalist sitcom style, you know, like laugh track sets this is all handheld freewheeling and whereas Seinfeld has you know this kind of center of Jerry as a kind of stable calm you know core of the universe here it's the neurotic Larry David who is um 
who is at the, at the heart of things. So all those things, I think, give it a completely different feeling from Seinfeld, even though it's kind of clearly from the same DNA. I mean, it's been a long, around a long time. Like, this is this is 2000, I think, this episode, the pilot's been around for 23 years, mm. and it's still really popular. Um in my mind, this is... I think this is my number one comedy of all time, it just in terms of making me laugh. More so than Seinfeld? More so than, more so than Seinfeld, I think. Wow. I, mean, I, I love Seinfeld. I love the brilliance and genius of Seinfeld. I, you know, but I think this just beat for beat, moment for moment. Larry David was one of those people who just... I mean, Carl and I, we both love it. We were watching the pile together for this and we just, we just started laughing when he appeared and when he talked to people. So it's one of those things... I guess you kind of feel, but you don't. But for me, I think just this is probably the show I've laughed the most at. Also, that there is a Seinfeld angle too. Yeah. So in the first, um, in a couple of ways. So, you know, Seinfeld is a continuous point of reference. You know, even in this pilot episode, there's a scene where Larry and his wife Cheryl um, can't get a table at a restaurant and Cheryl makes him tell the, you know, uh, person... Uh, what's it, Maitre d'. Maitre d', yeah, that um, he's a guy who created Seinfeld. Larry's very embarrassed. There's also a lot of running jokes in these first couple of seasons about sour grapes, the movie that Larry David kind of wrote after Seinfeld. Right. So there's that. Um, second, there are Seinfeld actors who make cameos. There are there are subplots with Julia um, Louis Dreyfus and Jason Alexander, and of course in season six or seven there is an entire Seinfeld reunion. So all those continuities with Seinfeld are there. In terms of this pilot episode, I mean, I think just even describing the plot makes you realise how continuous it is for Seinfeld. So um, a couple... So it, it, uh, something I should have said to you, where Seinfeld's kind of like a strict 20, 21-minute format, this is half an hour. Yeah. And in some of the later seasons, the episodes stretch to 40 or 45 minutes, and they tend to be a bit baggier. I think the half-hour format works really well for Curb. And we meet Larry, we meet his wife Cheryl, we meet his best friend Richard Lewis, or one of his best friends, we meet his manager Jeff Green, played by Jeff Garland, a couple of things happen. Um, Larry buys a pair of pants which have a suggestive-looking fold on the crotch. He goes to the movies with one of Cheryl's friends. She looks at the fold and thinks it's because of her rather than because of the pants. He also alienates a woman at the cinema who turns out to be Richard Lewis's girlfriend. And he there's a whole scenario where he calls um, Jeff on a car phone. Jeff answers. Larry jokingly refers to his wife as Hitler. Um, doesn't realise that Jeff's parents are in the car. Larry has to apologise to Jeff's parents for the joke and things kind of snowball from there and it's like Seinfeld and that you have a couple of subplots that come together quite neatly at the end I think there are so many Seinfeld tropes here that take on a new life but also some distinctive ones I know one of the kind of we're on the same page about nearly everything TV but I know the curb is not a great love of yours so I'm wondering if why and how you feel re-watching the pilot yeah so I, again, this is this is a series I did not watch soon after Seinfeld, yep. and when I was introduced to it, I found it off-putting hmm. because there were certain similarities to Seinfeld aesthetically, comically, structurally. And should we say, but for, it was not Seinfeld for due diligence that your favourite character is Jerry. Yeah. So there, there is no Jerry here. Yeah. Or is there? Well, who, who do you so, think? So so yeah. So I I was I was also the style. The style is very different. Yep. Uh, the unadorned handheld camera. Hmm. Um, the, you know the the fact that a lot of these over the shoulder shots, mm. um, it's it's kind of quite low energy. I mean, generally compared to Seinfeld, which is which is almost you know hyperkinetic, hyperactive. At, at the time, I and mean, this is probably you know the to me like even more so than The Office. This is the quintessential handheld single camera kind of comedy. At the time, it felt radical. Like, yeah, it felt completely unlike anything I'd ever seen. Definitely. Like, well, we watched the Larry David show the other week, and this feels more continuous with that. Yep. I mean the. The Larry Sanders show. The Larry Sanders yeah, yeah. show, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Larry, Larry Sanders Different show. Larry. Yeah. I still haven't got that that uh, 
that uh, TV series right the title, have I? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that definitely felt like this feels like a stylistic successor to that mm. um, than Seinfeld. Um, so all of those factors um, slightly disarmed me, as well as the fact that Jerry was my favourite character. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry being the, Jerry's your the, guy. the straight man, um, you know, the kind of the the sun around which all of the other characters, sure. like planets, revolved. Um, and yeah, so this was a this was a little bit also like I think this sometimes lacked the I wouldn't even describe it as warmth, but this is much this is even more cynical, even more dyspeptic, dyspeptic than Seinfeld. Yeah, although something I will say is I feel like something you realise watching it is that like part of what's interesting about it is that like I don't think Larry is just a bastard. Like I don't think Larry is just a horrible person. It's almost like Larry what Larry reveals are everybody else's affectations. Yeah. I think I think Larry actually is a very warm person at heart yeah. and a very convivial and conversational and interested and quizzical person. Like one of his great kind of refrains is, let me ask you something. Yeah. So he's actually, but, he, but he, he lives, he's like an idiot savant. He lives in a world where he's continually disrupting other people's affectations. I think actually he's somebody you come to care very much about. Yeah, so I think re-watching it, I was much warmer on it yeah, cool. than I was the first time because I... I now come through it through the prism of, of you know, being nothing like Seinfeld. Mm. Whereas this time, I actually made me more aware of the reminiscences. Yeah, right. With Seinfeld, what did you? What resonance did you say? I particularly felt that that Larry, rather than just being George, was an amalgam yeah. of George oh, absolutely. and Jerry. Mm. So there are times when he is the straight man, mm. you know, and there's a kind of sat, you know, satirization of of California and kind of cultural. Mm mores and social mores and etiquette um and everyone's kind of you know you know um predisposition to be offended mm. you know unreasonably is something that that's constantly you know drawn attention alluded to in this in this so in that sense you know he's he's a straight man in this in this crazy universe but there's other times where he's he's a bit of a prov- provocateur mm. and he likes you know stirring the pot he likes pushing people's buttons mm. um and there are, there are other times when he's you know very neurotic mm. and his neuroticism is is you know the, the the grist to the middle of this of this series so i, I find that transition between jerry and george yep. the jerry and george polarities yep. interesting mm. and that did make him at times a bit of a bastard and other yep. times a bit of a bit of a victim mm. so and i think almost the pleasure of the show is is determining which which is he? You know, is he at fault or not? I think for that reason, like that exactly, that oscillation is, is a large part of what the show is about. And for that reason, I think the recurring fascination of Curb is like the etiquette of apologies, yeah. gifts and tips. Yes. So like what it means to give something, what it means to give something in good faith. So even in this pilot episode, it's almost like continuous apologies. Yeah. Right? So, you know, firstly, when Larry's on the phone, as I mentioned to Jeff, um, he calls his wife Hitler as a joke. Jeff's parents are outraged because they've got a you know, relative who's a Holocaust survivor. So they, Larry has to apologise then. That's apology one. Apology two, when Larry goes over after that apology to Jeff and Susie's place, the manager, his, um, manager and his agent and his wife, he doesn't go upstairs to see their daughter and the parents are enraged at that again. So he has to apologise a second time. On top of that, Jeff is, is himself sorry about the fact that Larry you know, heard him like his parents heard Larry in the car and so he calls Larry and leaves a message on his answering machine just saying sorry. Yeah. Larry's wife hears that, but of course Larry can't, Cheryl hears that, but of course Larry can't explain where the apology comes from because it was 
about him calling her Hitler. So there's all this discussion about the etiquette of what it means to just leave a message on an answering yeah. machine. Then Jeff apologises for that apology, for just leaving the message, the apology with that. Yeah. So the whole thing is just like this cascade of apologies. It's interesting you say that um, it focuses in particular on apologies and, and gift giving. So mm. I think the commonality between the two is it, it's, it's a kind of empty ritual that substitutes for genuine for genuine sentiment. Mm. So or he Larry apologizes three or four times in this series, mm. but in each case it's an extorted apology. Yep. And it, it's done largely at the best of uh Cheryl Cheryl. Cheryl. Um and it's done in a way that that substitutes for any sort of genuine remorse on his part. But at the same time I think so the thing, I think that's I think there's like there's some some derrida thing. I think it's like the paradox of a gift of a true gift is to be to give someone a true gift. You don't need them to recognise it as a gift as such, and so it's like it's like, it feels like that here. It's like when Larry does genuinely apologise, nobody nobody even realises it's happening. Or yeah. when Larry gives a genuine gift, nobody realises it's happening. It's like when you give a tip at a restaurant, like the true spirit in which you give a tip is to not to not even have it seem like a tip at all. Yeah, it's, it's just part of the payment. So it's like there's there's this kind of world where when Larry does give a tip or give a gift or make an apology and it's sincere by very the very definition of its sincerity it's not registered as such but when it rises to the level of ritual then it becomes something that almost by definition insincere yeah yeah so i think larry like he he wants to call out rituals rituals yep. that are deprived mm. of their substance yep. and that's often the focus of the mm. kind of the the gray area in social etiquette yep. social discourse that's that's uh, honed in on in this series. Oh, no, too, just in terms of etiquette that's continuous with Seinfeld, I mean, a couple of big Seinfeld obsessions here too. So cinema etiquette. Yeah. So Seinfeld, <laughs> a huge part of Seinfeld is cinema etiquette. And here we have, right away, we have the etiquette of what it means to sit on the aisle. Like yeah. if you sit on the aisle seat, you have to be gracious about letting people get in. But also when Larry initially calls Richard Lewis, at the beginning, Richard Lewis says, oh, I'm going to the same movie tonight with my girlfriend. And Larry's like, okay, there's no invitation. So there's a whole question about, you know, the etiquette of, you know, a couple inviting a single person who's going to the same movie to sit with them. So there's film etiquette. Also, one of the overwhelming obsessions of Seinfeld, phone and answering machine etiquette. Yes. And that's huge here. So there's all this stuff about what it means to leave a decontextualised apology on someone's answering machine. But also you've got a new kind of phone etiquette, car phone etiquette. Yeah. So the whole issue that Larry has with Jeff is that, you know, Jeff doesn't say to Larry that there are other people in the car. And that, that's one of my pet hates when you have a phone conversation with somebody and you're talking yeah, in the car. Phone. They don't tell you they're on speakerphone. <laughs> so you have this these Seinfeld absolute obsessions with like, I mean, I guess they're media obsessions, ultimately obsessions about what it means to go to the movies, to kind of leave a message on an answering machine and to make a phone call. But they're tied into a, a more particular Larry David-esque focus on apologies yeah. and gifts and, and tips become huge later on too. Yes, yeah. yes. So it seems like the general trajectory of this of this series is Larry David just making apology after apology, but never yep. being forgiven. Yep, exactly. And and and, <laughs> it's and constantly kind of you know, there's a debt that can never be repaid. Yeah, and it's almost like to put it another way, it's like it's like it's like in many ways it feels like the show, especially it kind of it preempts the world we live in now, where mm. everything is branded, and maybe because it's set in California, and California is already somewhat, always somewhat already in the future, it kind of it allows Larry to glimpse that world. Like it's like. I feel like we live in a world sometimes where any act of sincerity has to be branded on social media and it has to be kind of performed or theatrical or self-serving in some way. And like the paradox of Curb is that when Larry does things that are kind of authentic but not branded, they're never noticed. But when he offends other people's branded authenticity, yeah. then it's a massive issue. So there's a great episode, for example, where Larry and Ted Danson both donate money to the wing, I think, of a hospital 
and Larry does it genuinely anonymously and Ted does it anonymously but tells everyone it's him. <laughs> so everyone knows that Ted's anonymous. And it's like the, the whole thing becomes about, oh, isn't Ted Danson modest for saying anonymous? <laughs> so the anonymity of the gesture becomes performed. So, yeah, I mean, I think just, you know, in a social media universe, uh, you know, like capitalist world where, yeah, authenticity is branded. It's like Larry's authenticity never ramifies because it's not branded in the right way. But other people's branded authenticity yeah. is something he's continu continually treading on their toes. This is what makes it, I guess, a Southern Californian Absolutely. Seinfeld par excellence. Absolutely. It's like by stepping to Southern California, he's just sat a little bit further in the future. So, look, I, I'm curious, are you going to keep watching it, do you think? Look, I, I, I think I'm, I'm compelled to continue watching. Yes. I want you to love it. Yes. I want you to love it. Cause I feel like I could get there. Because I, I love Seinfeld. <laughs> I mean, you know, when I say, I think I think this and Seinfeld are equally good. Maybe Seinfeld's better in some ways, but in terms of comedy, this is the one I keep coming back to and laughing again and again. A lot of it does depend on your mileage with Larry David himself. If it, you do find him endearing, absolutely. then I think you, you'll get through anything. And I, this in this rewatch, I found him much more endearing than I did the first time. And that's time. what it comes down to. Like For me, there are just certain comedians, Larry David, Amy Schumer, Tina Fey, Steve Martin, I just find them funny in and of themselves. Yeah. And if you like that with Larry, you'll be on board. So I'm, I'm glad you like it more. It's always troubled me that you don't love it, <laughs> but I'm glad you're enjoying it more. What's your choice for next week? Well, as we're, we've just done a sitcom. Yep. And as we also looked at a UFO yep. narrative, I thought I'd combine the two. Fantastic. And we look at the 80s sitcom UFO classic, ALF. Amazing. <laughs> and it's funny you say comedy because I remember as a kid being absolutely terrified of ALF. Oh, really? Okay. I was finding it so scary. So okay. it'd be interesting to kind of watch it again with adult eyes. Mm. Awesome. Okay, well, that's next week we'll do. We're moving from Curb Your Enthusiasm to ALF. <laughs> from the sublime to the ridiculous. Yeah, or the scary when I was a kid. <laughs> I'm, I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>